Yeah. Okay, perfect. All right. So welcome to a new episode of Good Home Hunting with Eleanor and Huntington, two sisters who normally are in different places, but today are in the same place. Yes. And we talk about our childhood films. And today we have a very special guest, um, Professor Susan Omer from the University of Notre Dame. And I was very fortunate enough to have Professor Omer in college for several classes, including Disney Film and Culture. Are you there? I'm right here and oh, happy okay. to be here. My sister gets very nervous about my technological ability. <laughs> <laughs> I'm driving, I can't. This is the perfect opportunity to delegate. Whoever is not driving can worry about it. <laughs> Even in Iowa or Freeport, you want to be careful. I remember that. I loved it when people brought their relatives and friends and neighbors, and particularly when we sang along. That was really, really special to me. Oh, it was special to me, too. Don't worry. <laughs> a very good friend of mine from college came with us once, too, Greg Wood, and mm-hmm. he came from Lion King, and he, said he and I both think it's one of our favorite memories from Oh, I'm glad, because, you know, some people feel that it's just as good to watch it online, and really, when it comes to Disney films, it's not. It's just simply not. No, and it's really nice to be able to have so many of them now available on Netflix and everything like that, because it's transportable, for sure. But it is, seeing it on the big screen was so great, especially because the first movie Annie and I saw in theaters was with our babysitter, Mary Barton. Yeah. remember this? I don't remember, no. But I remember Beauty and the Beast. Oh, that's why it's special to you. Oh. Yeah. So, and it's, so there's like so many memories associated. We saw, oh my goodness. Eleanor's phone is not ringing. It's all the good things. Yes. <laughs> Eleanor's phone call thing, ringtone, really upsets me. I find it really boring, but that's okay. So, anyway, as Professor Omar, um, we start each podcast by talking about something in pop culture that we really loved from the past week or in the past uh-huh. few So um, if you would like to start with that, that would be awesome. Gee, really loved this week. Oh, I'd have to think. <laughs> because since the election is coming up, love isn't the first word on your mind. <laughs> uh, I feel you. <laughs> oh, let me think. Well, actually... Um, I mean, speaking of something in pop culture, although it's not Disney, um, my class is going to be watching The War Room, which was the behind-the-scenes documentary about Bill Clinton's campaign in 1992. Um, I don't don't know if you've ever seen that, but that is hands down one of the all-time best political documentaries, absolutely hands down, In, in part because we know what comes after, um, and James Carville is in it, and George Stephanopoulos is in it, and the camera work is fascinating, and the access that the filmmakers got was fascinating. And it involves some of the same people who worked on a behind-the-scenes documentary about John Kennedy in 1960. 
So it brings back a lot of those memories, too. But anyway, so as far as something I love, I really do love that one. So that was nice to think about. Oh, that sounds so lovely. I'll have to watch it. I haven't heard of that, actually. Um, it's, it's even out on a Criterion disc now. It's just one of those historic documentaries. So you can get it in a beautiful Criterion edition. But it wouldn't surprise me if Netflix brings it back for the campaign season. It would make perfect sense. And Hulu has a lot of the Criterion Collection streaming, too. That's, That's right. Hulu does. Yep, they generally put them out there, so it's probably there. Yeah. I'll have to watch it. Okay, um, so I think mine is actually something that I just told Eleanor. So my I'm a fifth-grade teacher, and right now mm-hmm. we're doing um, a unit on disabilities or, like, differences. Mm-hmm. I'm reading this book called Wonder with my student and students, and it's about this boy with, like, a craniofacial deformity. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's home for them. Which he, Eleanor sent me this video from the Story Corps, um, and it was about this. It was a little girl interviewing her mom, and her mom had mental disabilities. And at the end of it, she tells her mom that even though they're different and their lifestyle is different, they would have, she wouldn't want it any other way because she loved mm-hmm. her mom. Mm-hmm. So that I'm so, so great. with my students because they were all like, "Oh, we're so thankful we don't have." You know, the space is the for me that she has. And I'm like, it's good to be thankful for what we have, but we can't think of people with having anything less, you know? Like, mm-hmm. they're less. Mm-hmm. So that made me really happy that that kind of media exists for well, fifth graders. Well, in StoryCorps, that series that they did is they did it specifically to kind of combat the negativity from all the elections covered. And it's a joint project of Upworthy, uh, Steven Spielberg, Righteous Persons Foundation, and StoryCorps. But it's a real, that's a cool series. It is. Yeah. But I would say the best thing I saw within the last week was last Saturday I got a chance to see Moonlight, um, the Barry Jenkins film that was recently released, and I got to see it at Arclight, so it was like a beautiful screen, and it is it was a movie I thought I would go into or would even be very depressed but it's such it's such a hopeful film and it's mm. charming romantic and it was it's like such a great so many great performances that that was by far the best thing I've consumed I would say in the last week good yeah. excellent so there's it's always nice to see something that's hopeful I mean it may not be as dramatic or it might be dramatic in different ways but I really think the idea of hopefulness is just especially appealing right now. Yes. Well, and that's not to say that the movie, I mean, the movie deals with difficult issues. Right. Because his mother's a heroin addict, and then there's a scene in the middle section of the movie because it deals with the boys when they're like 8 or 9, and then when they're 16 or 17, and then when they're 28 or 29. And the middle section in particular is very challenging to watch because there's one scene that's very violent, and I mm. didn't particularly well. I literally, I don't want, I didn't watch any of it. I essentially hid in my friend's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, but, and I was like, I can't watch this. But it was really, it's so well done, and especially compared to another movie I saw this week, Girl on a Train, which I thought was overly violent for really no reason at all. Mm-hmm. It was nice to see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, when you, when you talk about seeing the boys at different ages, have you ever heard of the um, Up series, 7 Up, 14 Up, 21 Up, that series? No. Oh, it's um, documentaries. They were made in England, and 
this filmmaker started following a group of children when they were seven. And he decided to make a film about them every seven years. And I think it goes up to 35 up, but it might even be 42 up at this point. But it's fascinating because sometimes you see, I mean, they exhibit all sorts of changes. So sometimes the little guy who's really happy and upbeat at seven turns out to be happy and upbeat at 28. But then there's one whose life spirals downhill, and there are some who completely surprise you. And the as they go on in 28 up and 35 up, they the films integrate footage from the earlier ones. It's wonderful. It's a very um, well-regarded series. People just love it whenever he he does the next edition. But since you were you were just talking about something that can think of them at different ages, and these are real boys. So I mean, actual people. So that is. Uh, you might like that. I mean, it was a wonderful series. I haven't seen it in ages, but it was just wonderful. Oh, yes, that is wonderful. Yes, it really is. And the performances in that one wonderful, too. I know, I hope that. I don't know what that young actor is doing now, but he was so talented. He was, yes. You know, that was, well, that was Richard Linklater, wasn't it? Because he just came yeah. out with something else. Eternities, I think. Hmm? It did. I love that particular director because I'm mm-hmm. obsessed for Sunrise series. I love those movies. I don't know. Ah. Like what's his name? Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah. Ethan Hawke and I forget her name. It was Patricia Arquette, wasn't it? In Boyhood, yeah, Patricia. Yeah, in Boyhood. Yeah, yeah Linklater. I think he just came out with something on fraternity. And I have oh, to say, I wasn't as thrilled to. Uh, Oh, that one. But. I think it was like a baseball team or something. Like everybody's got to have some or something. That's it. Yeah. It was something like that. Yep. And it, my thing is, is like it's kind of easy Everybody to Everybody wants some. That was it. Everybody wants yeah. some. And it's yeah. not in one theater in LA. And to me, that's always very telling. If it only mm-hmm. goes to one theater, then mm-hmm. it's not. And this one theater that I go to frequently, one out of the three that reminds me of one time we were in Westwood and I don't know if the theater is still there but it was like down close to Wilshire and it was a hole in the wall and I think it was like around the corner from the taco place it probably isn't there but all of a sudden they announced that this new Richard Dreyfuss movie was going to be there and that he would be there and I mean they announced it like two hours before. <laughs> there was no publicity. There was nothing. And we both thought, boy, this must really be bad. <laughs> and it was. I can't remember the name of it, but it was pretty terrible. But I remember that was the least publicity because it was no publicity of anything I'd ever heard. So you're right. That's definitely a sign. Definitely. I. It's so easy to tell, which is fun. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, but it, and it's also interesting, too, to think about the ones that they try to publicize that possibly aren't very good, but then they try to convince everyone they are. And in mm-hmm. a debate with a friend about whether Half Bow Rid is supposed to be good, the new Mount Gibson movie, because it's getting great reviews. But then but I have a friend who's like, we're only giving it good reviews because we're supposed to at this point, like, forgive Mel Gibson. Oh. Garfield mm. mm. is great. And it's like, Oscar worthy. But now we have to say everything. 
Well, you know, that was also part of the issue with Revenant. I mean, it was fascinating to see how the the attitudes towards Leonardo DiCaprio changed because he's a fabulous actor, in my view, and was nominated and nominated and nominated, and he'd go to the Oscars and he didn't win and didn't win and didn't win. And you could tell this year was it. You could tell. But it was as if all of us, well, maybe not all of a sudden, but the whole attitude shifted. I mean, people started to respect him as an actor, and, and then he wins. But before then, it's like he, he just couldn't prove himself often enough. Well, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, November starts to be really fun in terms of movies. So we'll, mm-hmm. yeah, but I'm hoping for things that are not as depressing or as violent as The Revenant. Yeah, it was gruesome. I mean, it was just breathtaking. <laughs> just when you think you've seen it all, no, you haven't. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, okay, but. I think we're ready to start talking about Princess Culture, which we're very excited to talk about, and specifically the film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which is Disney's first, not only its first feature, but really its first princess. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Professor Omer, if you are comfortable, oftentimes we have our guests provide a little bit of the synopsis to the film that they've selected. So would you be able to give us a little bit of a rundown on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Why, certainly. Um, it was, as you say, Disney's first feature, and the studio um, produced a number of shorts before that, and Walt Disney said that the shorts also functioned as a way to beef up the skills of the um, staff, the animators who were working on Snow White. Um, so it's like character development as far as the use of color, the use of space and music and so on. So you could actually see Snow White as a collection of short films. There's her her encounter with the queen. There's a scene in the forest. There's a scene when she first finds the dwarves' huts and cleans up the place. There's a scene when they come home. There's a scene um, when she encounters the witch again and eats the poison apple. It divides up fairly well into sequences. So it, it's based on a Grimm's fairy tale. Um, but it's obviously much more optimistic than that. Um, so this lovely princess who's voiced by a 14-year-old, Adriana Casolani, um, and sounds very young, um, is banished. Well, she's not exactly banished. She's um, about to be murdered <laughs> by her stepmother. But the huntsman who was charged with doing that doesn't have the heart to do it and tells her to flee. So she runs into the forest and has very happy encounters with happy little animals who take care of her and take her to the dwarf's college. Um, and then she meets the dwarves, and she takes care of the dwarves. And the witch comes back um, and brings her a poison apple, the witch is disguised, and she tempts Snow White to eat the poison apple. And then Snow White falls into a deep sleep, and the dwarves build her a beautiful resting place. And then the prince, whom she met in the first scene, um, comes to see her and gives her a kiss, and she wakes up. And he takes her off on her course, and they live happily ever after. So there you have it. I've given away the whole story. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned a lot, even in that, like, minute. I, well, I had no idea it was voiced by a 14-year-old girl. That makes it even more creepy. Exactly. You know, that is exactly right, because one of the things that happens, and, and when we talk about this in class, is one of the scenes is Snow White, 
um, by a wishing well, and she starts singing because that's what she does to cheer herself up. And she's singing, I'm wishing, I'm wishing for the one I love to find me, to find me today. And soon her voice is joined by the voice of the prince, who is eavesdropping on the other side of the castle wall, and he leaps over the wall um, to stand next to her, and they're singing together in the reflection in the wall. And when my students see that, you know, from today's perspective, they think, here's this guy who's eavesdropping and jumps over a wall to stand next to her. I mean, they're really creeped out by it because her voice is so young and his is fully mature that it is, it is a little bit creepy. It, it kind of is, definitely. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, though. So, again, I... I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. Interesting to me how many of them chose kind of older. Hmm. I heard. I heard how many of them chose. Yes, but then at the same time, I had a little a little girl trying to fracture Rapunzel, but she was using Rapunzel from Tangled, which isn't the traditional Rapunzel story necessarily. And so she was all confused. And she kept coming up to me and being like, "Is this really Rapunzel? Does Disney lie to me?" can be told in different ways and that you can pick out some parts of the story and leave out other parts of the story and Disney doesn't want to make a totally sad story so they put in some happy elements but but you know a really good comparison is Cinderella because there's the French fairy tale version and then there's the Grimm's Brothers version and it's Cinderella but they're very different accounts she might like to read that and compare that might be interesting to her yeah no okay The Grimm Brothers tale. Yeah, it goes back to the early 19th century. So, yeah, it was, you know, public domain. It was um, a widely known fairy tale. There is a story that Disney saw a silent stone version of it when he was a child and that it stayed with him. Um, it's a story that he told later. So it could have been inspired by an experience that he had as a child, which fits right into your topic today where we're yeah. talking about childhood memories. He did say that later on. Well, and what is, okay, so I'm thinking of this song at the beginning uh, by the Wishing Wall. And this, again, might be me calling from like six or seven years ago when I, more than six years ago, so seven or eight years ago from when I was in your class. And I specifically, I feel like I remember something about how it mirrored another popular art form in sound cinema at the time. With you were absolutely right. Yes, there were, um, they weren't comedies. There were uh, romantic musicals, Lubitsch, for example. Um, and there was one that we looked at with Jeanette McDonald and um, Nelson Eddy, where they sang duets in a garden. And it was very much modeled after that. Um, there's been some research that argues that. But, yes, it definitely draws on conventions of live-action film um, of around that time, of the mid-30s. So, definitely, kind of romance in the castle and... And he, the male is an outsider, and he comes in and has to win the hand of the princess. Yep, that's absolutely right. Good memory, Eleanor. Very good memory. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so, again, I'm speaking from this past week talking with 10-year-olds, but we told the kids that these original 
traditional fairy tales, we're told to, to, to tell a story, right? To kind of warn children of something. Um, like, they were usually pretty gruesome because they kind of made it better. Mm-hmm. What's the more gruesome version of, of Snow White? Like, and if so, what is it? Because I, I couldn't even, like, figure out. Like, I know that The Little Mermaid, and I know um, some of the other ones. I feel like Little Mermaid is the most gruesome, so it sticks in my brain to become sea foam for forever. But, oh, definitely. Yeah. See, what I remember about the Grim Tale is that there's actually a wedding. In the movie, Snow White and the Prince ride off together. But in the Grim Tale, there's a wedding. And let me see, is that the one where the sisters put on burning shoes and it, they dance until their feet burn off? It's, oh. it's got some really gory stuff. It's really, in general, if they cut it out, it's a good thing. Snow <laughs> White is so scary. I mean, earlier today we were talking to our dad about Sleeping Beauty because there's nothing my dad hates more than Sleeping Beauty because he's terrified of Maleficent. Um, but Snow White is equally, I mean, it's so hard to imagine, like, an adult person taking a 14-year-old and then purposely destroying them. And so with this news, I remember specifically an article on, I forget from where, actually people came out about, or not, I'm sorry, Frozen came out about how bad Frozen actually might be for kids because there's no, there's absolutely no forewarning that Prince Hans is as evil as he is. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can't trust anyone, even if someone has the appearance of being like a good and charitable person. And I think... So then maybe this is like a consistent strain throughout the week. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust adults. Kids only. Well, that's... Yeah, it is true. And also, that I mean, one way that um, the, the Disney simplified the Grimm's Brothers tales is that the queen keeps trying to get Snow White three times. And the film simplifies it so that she just makes one attempt. But... But even then, I mean, the sense that adults are out to get you or they're going to kill you or, you know, you can't trust them. And, it's, of course, it's usually mothers, which many people have talked about in Disney. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, the world is a threatening place and you have to find a little cottage in the woods. With Eventually, he became very anti-union, how Snow White and the Seven Dwarves showed Walt Disney as, like, a labor activist. Where, like, it had, like really? people have read, like, labor strains into it. I mean, I see that. There are um, the sequence that many people often refer to in relation to that in Snow White is one where Snow White organizes all the animals in the forest to clean up when she sings with the while you work. Um, and the sequence finds very creative uses for the animal body parts so that the squirrels twirl their tails to be... Um, um, dusters, and the deer licks the plate, which is kind of yucky, um, but all the animals do something to help clean up the dwarf's cottage, and it uses some part of them in a creative way, and that's very much like the shorts of, of the earlier 30, because the animals often do something funny with their arms or their legs or their tails or some part of them, so it, it builds on the earlier Disney films. But it, it is, as you say, an organized work process. And you see that kind of humor in earlier films as one. Some of the, as well, some of the films of the mid-30s 
have um, assembly line productions, like there's a film called Santa's Workshop, and all the elves are putting the toys together, and it's in an assembly line. And then there's a grasshopper and the ant, and the ants are building their colony as an assembly line. So you do have these assembly line manufacturing processes in some of the films. I don't know that I would call him a labor activist, but it, many people feel that it mirrors the assembly line process of animation because that is also step-by-step step and there's specialized labor and people have specific responsibilities. But it is interesting that you get these assembly line themes in um, several of his cartoons of the 30s. That's fascinating. Disney, man, what an interesting guy. That's he cool. is. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's endless. I mean, it's really, of He's fascinating himself, but also the way that he brought together this cadre of outstanding animators, and they all worked together in different ways to come up with these memorable films for decades, you know, not just the 30s or the 40s, but ever since. I mean, it's as, as an individual and as a company and as a company that continues, it's really dazzling. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like what you wrote in an email to us earlier. I think maybe it's fascinating. How it is, I think it is fascinating that people and, and children, especially, still connect with this film. That That is, and now, like, what, 60 years old? 65? 37, so it's about 80. Oh. Yeah, Almost 80. I, I'm not sure that many of today's films will hold up like that. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's still such a part of of childhood, of like the child consciousness, that it's still a story that they know and they know well. Um, you, you know, you're right. I mean, it's interesting to think about Will Frozen have that effect. I don't know. I mean, is it, why is it that, that film and Cinderella, you know, why they're still so popular? I mean, I'm fascinated by it because whenever I go to the parks, I like to see what, what dresses people are wearing. And of course, now the adults really can't, but, but the kids can. But it used to be when the adults could, you would see an occasional Snow White dress. It wasn't that many, but you would see one on an adult. And I think, what is it about Snow White that someone's responding to? I think it is her caring. I mean, the character is very um, maternal. She's very um, protective. She cares for the dwarves, and she cares for the animals. And, you know, that's an admirable trait. So I think that's one of the things that people respond to, but... But it is interesting. This film from the late 1930s still makes people want to dress up like its main character. I mean, that's just fascinating. Have you had any students um, that you interact with that Snow White has been their favorite of all of them? Maybe one or two. I mean, in general, the students now, it's absolutely The Little Mermaid, um, yeah. Lion King, and Beauty and the Beast. Those are those are the ones. So those are the early to mid nineties. So that would be before their childhoods, um, but recent enough that their parents might know them or you know might want to show them that. But the early to mid nineties is really the period when when students today seem to to like the film. I, mm-hmm. I love it, but. I would have to say in terms of kind of like the princess culture, and I'm not sure that you consider it a princess. I feel like Pocahontas is like my spirit animal, except that she's a human, so maybe my spirit, spirit part. Because <laughs> mm. I, I love to be out in nature, and I feel like her, that the song that she sings, like, 
what's just around the riverbend very much explains, like, my whole life thought. Like, I find Because I'm always like, but what's going to happen next? Um, so, I don't know. Her whole, her whole story kind of spoke to me. I found her really like, mine powerful. Mine definitely lost. done that but now so you could i think that could be a mulan tour Oh. 
you know, that reminds me that one of the, the um, when I last taught Disney, the Performing Arts Center at Notre Dame um, arranged to have screenings for the public on Sunday afternoons of Disney films. And they pay the performance rights, and so people could come watch them. And one of our former football players paid for all the children's tickets. Wait, that's adorable. Isn't it? That it was just in touch because it was announced there. And so all the kids got to come for free um, because he took care of the kids, which was adorable. So the lots of kids came and got popcorn, and so you could hear their little voices in the movie theater. But I remember, and I asked my class to go so they could experience the films with the children. But I remember when, and we were talking about this last week, when they um, showed Cinderella, and it was clear that the kids had no idea that this story would work out. I mean, it was news to them. Um, and so, you know, they were they were all distressed. Was Cinderella going to be okay? And, and would she try on the slipper? And we all knew what was going to happen, but it was new for them. And it was so wonderful to experience it through their eyes. And you could hear their little voices, come on, come on. Um, <laughs> plus the rest of us were like, oh, they'll be fine. But But the kids didn't know that. So that was really fun. Are you there? Uh oh, we lost each other. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 